Welcome to Mint, the podcast exploring the Web3 creator economy. I'm your host, Adam Levy, and every Tuesday and Thursday, I'll be showing you what's happening at the corner where crypto meets creators by interviewing Web3's top creative entrepreneurs, collectors, and founders. This episode is brought to you by the composable and decentralized social graph Lens Protocol, who's ready for you to build on so that you can focus on creating a great experience, not scaling your users. Guys, I've talked about this on the podcast before. We as creators need to break through a new paradigm of social networking apps that we control rather than them controlling us. Lens Protocol isn't a social media app. It's designed to let Web3 social apps bloom. Own your content, own your social graph, own your data. Lens Protocol is the last social media handle you'll ever have to create. Now, this is where it gets kind of fun. Listeners of the Mid Podcast are legible for claiming a Lens profile. Go to the show notes and fill out the survey in order to get allow listed for a Lens profile. You need the secret passcode also linked in the show notes to submit the form, which is valid for the next 24 hours. So go create your profile, go find me and follow me. I'll see you there. This episode welcomes Alex Svanovic, CEO of Nansen.ai, the leading blockchain analytics tool for crypto traders. In this episode, we discuss his early days of playing guitar, AI's role in Web3, the intersection of NFTs and DeFi, Nansen's acquisition of 8Board, the biggest challenges in building Nansen, metrics to measure successful communities, and so much more. I hope you guys enjoy our conversation. Alex, welcome to Mint. Thank you for being on. What's going on, man? It's going going great. I'm here in Singapore. It's a nice sunny morning. Nice to be on the nice. podcast. Nice to have you on. A part of season six, all about on-chain data. Um, I think it's there's no one more applicable than you that could be on the season, considering everything that you're doing at Nansen. So I think a good place to start, Alex, is who the hell are you? What does the world need to know about you? Um, give a quick intro. We can start there and then work our way forward. Yeah, so I'm Alex. I'm the CEO and one of the three co-founders at Nonsen, which is a blockchain analytics platform and increasingly the information super app of Web3. Um, my background is originally in AI. I'm, uh, I worked as a data scientist for several years. Um, and then in 2017, I discovered Ethereum, fell down the rabbit hole very quickly, left my job in Barcelona at the time and moved to Hong Kong to uh, build up a data team uh, at a crypto startup, which was an ICO. And it failed mm. miserably, like, like <laughs> most ICOs in 2018. Uh, and after about 10 months, I was laid off along with the rest of the team because they ran out of money. Uh, so myself and one of the guys on my team, Evgeny, spent uh, maybe nine months trying to figure out what to do next. Uh, I, and in the meantime, I was working with um, projects like Zero X, for example, trying to help them to get a better understanding of the whole DEX space and slippage across different markets and 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 DEXs. Um, and late 2019, Evgeny, myself, and our third co-founder Lars started working on Nansen. Um, I was at the time I was in Japan actually, uh, going moving back from Hong Kong to Barcelona and had mm. a stop uh, in a couple of different countries in Asia. And so we had just been to DevCon in Osaka in 2019. And so maybe there was a bit of like inspiration from, from having uh, been there uh, to, to kind of create something. Uh, and of course, we've been 
working on this open source project that Evgeny created, which uh, which we can talk about later, but effectively it, it's um, the best way to get blockchain data out of Ethereum into a relational database. Uh, we've been thinking about how to build like a commercial or sustainable business on top of that project. And so kind of things, um, the pieces fell, fell into place around that time. And we came up with the idea of Nelson, which has labeled wallets on top of the on-chain data and then package that into an analytics user interface, which allows people to understand what's happening on the blockchain in real time. So that's kind of, yeah, who I am and how we okay. ended up building Nelson. Solid, solid intro. Can you talk more about what a labeled wallet is just for the users who, who aren't familiar? And how do you go by, yeah. by, how do you go about labeling a wallet in that scale too? Yeah. Uh, so when I joined crypto, uh, there were, you had a lot of these sensationalist tweets, which were like, oh, $200 million of tether moved from address A to B. Right. The and whale watcher address. <laughs> Yes, exactly. Yes, yes. And then people would always, they would always go viral. And it was also, it's, it's very intriguing, right? Who are these entities and what are they doing with this amount of money, right? And so <clears throat> the reason I mentioned that is it kind of points to a very basic problem with blockchain data, which is that you don't know who the addresses are. And so uh, that to me seemed like kind of a, an interesting problem to try to solve. Like how can you give people more transparency into who are behind these different wallets? It's a very different thing to see, this is Binance moving $200 million from one account to another of their accounts, than it is to see this is Alameda, you know, putting $200 million into a, a DeFi staking pool or something like that, right? Those are two very different things. But if you don't have labeling, there's no way to know the difference. Right. You, see, you, you just see transfer funds from A to B. And so when we say labeled wallets, what we mean is we need to give kind of a context on uh, top of the transactional data that you see so that people can understand what is this transaction really or what are these flows that are going across multiple transactions, right? And so a few examples, I mean, and, and then a few, but obviously exchange wallets is a big part of the universe here. And uh, maybe something like 25 to 30% of all ETH is sitting in exchange wallets. Right. So, mm. so that's a, that's a big part of the universe. And we're talking about tens of millions of addresses that you have to label as exchange wallets, but there are other types of wallets too. There are funds like Alameda, Three Arrows Capital. Uh, there's also <laughs> other CFI platforms like Celsius, BlockFi, Nexo. TBT. Yeah. <laughs> and, 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 and then, and then you have, uh, of course, a lot of smart contract based entities like Uniswap, Aave, and so on, but you you don't get the uh, you don't get those labels for free in the blockchain data. That's something that you have to impose and, and mm -hmm. sort of put on top of um, the, the the blockchain data. So you can think of what we do as kind of creating a real world context that you can connect or lie on top of the transactional data, and um, and yeah, it, it just makes the on chain data ten to a hundred times more useful because you can actually reason about it and think about like what, what's actually going on here uh, at the individual level, like the whale uh, watcher, whale alert example, but also at the more macro level. So how much ether is flowing into exchanges or out of exchanges as a result of the merge, for example, you can't answer that question unless you have labeled wallets. 
And there's a bunch of other questions like that, that you really need to have really good labeling to, to understand. And then your second, the second part of your question is like, how do you do it? Mm -hmm. uh, the short answer is there is no sil silver bullet. You have to kind of make use of both man and machine. And so the largest team we have at Nonsense is called the attribution team. And their job is literally to just tag up as many walls as they can. But most of it is algorithmic, right? Most of it is engineers creating heuristics, algorithms, machine learning models that, that try to tag up at scale with high precision. But you do also have uh, quite a big, uh, quite a large kind of small, you know, an army of people who are labeling things manually too, because the machines can't do everything, right? You, you need to have some human intelligence in the loop as well. And then you have to make sure that these two things can come together and you can use uh, machine learning or algorithmic approaches to help prioritize which addresses that you want to spend time on. Like what is an interesting wallet that is worth a research analyst's time to dig into, right? Got it. So, so it's a combination of man and machine. That's the kind of Got it. First. But you know, the craziest part of all this is that you have a guitar behind you and I feel like you're pretty creative and I'm trying to think to myself, like, how did you become so analytical and where does this AI side come from? And you know, what's cr even funnier, a lot of like, uh, crypto people have music backgrounds. Like the first person that comes to mm. mind is Ken Warwick from synthetics. He used to work at guitar center. If you look at his I LinkedIn, used to work at a, I also used to work at a guitar center. Really? Okay. I, yeah. I feel like I grew up at a guitar center. Wait, so what, what's That's your funny. music background? That's funny. Yeah. I mean, um, I knew Kane playing the band. I didn't know he worked in the guitar center. That's very funny. Uh, so, uh, I initially started playing guitar when I was six, uh, and I, and I, and I hated it for like <laughs> six years, but I kept playing. And then when I was 12, 13, uh, I got my first electric guitar. And I discovered Jimi Hendrix. And so that's Oof. when I got really interested in, in, that's when I started playing uh, out of my own will instead of just having to go to the guitar uh, teacher. Um, and then I started playing in a band shortly after and I discovered like it's way more fun playing in a band than playing uh, just by yourself. And I do think that there are some uh, helpful learnings from playing in a band. Like being in a startup is not that different from being in a band. Especially Absolutely. in the beginning. In the beginning, Absolutely. Right? It's very similar. Especially when it Love. comes to writing songs too. Oh yeah. Yeah. And and then thinking about kind of people have different roles, right? And then you are trying to find carve out some kind of niche or something that is kind of compelling and interesting. There's an audience there that you have to engage with. And um, you know, it, it, in many ways it's quite similar to being a startup in, in a garage or something. And literally bands are often in garages as well, right? Uh so um so yeah, that, and then I, it, for high school, I uh, went to a performing arts high school. <laughs> okay. And, 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 and so I studied like uh, music, which was my specialization. Also dancing, like uh, Wait, you're a dancer? No, 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 no. I would not say I'm a dancer, but that was one of the courses uh, that I, I did do ballroom dancing for a couple of years too. Wow. But, uh, and then, and then drama or like acting. Uh, so so that was that was my high school. It, it was not a typical kind of science high school or anything. But uh, to your point about being analytical, I guess music is also quite analytical and sure. and to some extent mathematical, depending on how you look at it. So I guess there's like uh, you know I have an inclination towards uh, kind of figuring systems out and and trying to crack the code in different ways and 
there's a lot of like music theory when you get into that and jazz and and things like that which um which kind of appeals to the intellect in some ways and uh because i was studying music i didn't have much mathematics so i i i did uh the mathematics course on my own for high school mm. uh without without a teacher and just took the exams for it and then later on uh i when i went to university i i took started a cognitive science degree and then went into ai later on um so it's kind of a weird path but i do think that there are some some ways that these things come together maybe one uh one book that comes to mind which i would okay. recommend to everyone is called uh, gödel escherbach it's by a guy called douglas hofs uh, hofstadter okay and it actually when you read that book my background starts to make a lot more sense because uh music and art and mathematics and logic and computer science there are a lot of common elements to them and that book kind of nicely pulls um some of these things together so it might look strange from the outside but to me it makes perfect sense so from my point of view the reason why i ended up in crypto i feel like and not pursuing music because i've been playing drums since five years old similar to when you started playing guitar yes. And uh, my and but now they just collect dust because I also live in a place <laughs> because it's just like wall to wall and I can't set up an acoustic kit. But my dad told me there's no money in music. You're going into big tech or you're going into finance. You're going into consulting. Uh, and my, uh, dad I did, my dad said that as well. Consulting, there it is. Which, so, which, I, which I did, which I did for three years. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So okay. So on that note, are you a big fan of the whole music NFT trend that's happening and all the noise around music artists getting into crypto, tokenizing their songs, like? Are you bullish or are you bearish on that? You know, there are some things that I'm kind of bullish long-term and then bearish short-term. Um, and so music NFTs, I'm, I'm definitely bullish long-term. It seems obvious. Like, it seems really stupid that you, you're not able to bet on artists and like support them and have a financial upside on discovering artists early. That seems kind of stupid. Like we have all the technology to do it. It's just like regulation or like existing industrial forces or music industry forces that are preventing this. So I think long-term I'm very bullish. In the short term, um, there's definitely some degree of hype and I haven't seen any products that have really cracked the code when it comes to music NFTs. Mm. I, feel similar, I feel somewhat similarly about gaming NFTs, which I'm very bullish on long-term. I do feel like gaming NFTs uh, are maybe closer than music NFTs to to kind of succeed in a big way. Um, but what, yeah. what do you think they're missing? Music NFTs or game yeah. NFTs? The music NFTs, because you believing that the platform hasn't cracked it yet. So there has to be more than just tokenizing music and collecting music, right? From that point, because yeah. that's sort of like the stage that we're at right now. Yeah, so I think one thing, which is a broader point about what you can and can't do from a regulatory perspective with tokens, is just that if I could own a piece of a music, uh, a piece uh, of a music piece, uh, or the whole music piece, and then get royalties like revenues from it, that seems like an obvious thing that we should do. And then you could trade the ownership, right? But you can't do that because it's a security, and you know that doesn't that doesn't really work in in today's world, which sucks. So then you have to come up with other ways that music NFTs can have value, right? And so what are these other ways? Like, are they just kind of fan tokens and they're scarce and, you know, they're somehow limited. But 
that that's why I think there's so much work to be done around like the whole royalties area and also securities laws and regulations that it doesn't feel like it's uh, going to happen anytime soon. Uh, when I say soon, I mean like next 12 to 24 months. Yeah. Um, but, but it does seem like, Hey, it would be a much better world if you could be an artist and like issue some kind of tokenized assets to your fans and they could like invest in them. And then if this artist takes off those pieces will be worth way more. And so not only did you help them get started through financing, but also you're getting a piece of their success with financial returns. Like that's kind of what mu the music industry or like record labels have done right. for decades, right? Why shouldn't that be more democratized uh, in a way? So that's why I think like it makes total, total sense. We have all the technology to do it, but there are so many kind of market forces and music industry forces that prevent, and also frankly, like SEC and securities laws and stuff preventing it from happening. Um, but it makes way more sense. And, and if you'd start from scratch, you'd probably design the system that way rather than how it works today. Right. So that tends to be like the argument. And also you, you sort of touched upon a sensitive topic. Like there's this whole debate and people also criticize me for structuring it like this. It's either like it's a patronage based music NFT or a royalty based royalty backed music NFT. And it's interesting to hear you take like the, the default version of the definition of what you imagine this space looking like from a royalty point of view. I also yeah. think it's interesting how it ties into your background, like looking at the DeFi space, understanding traditional finance, AI, and all the additional processes, because someone, a new artist who's trying to make something of themselves, a new music artist is, is probably not going to have, let's say all the streaming data to sort of back the value of who they are in web two and may rely on all the forces and all the degenerate kind of like gambling, gambling, speculative nature of, of, of web three to sort of kickstart their career from a collectible patronage point of view. Um, yeah. so yeah, no, that's, that's an excellent point. And I do think that, um, maybe there's something in between, which is like subscription type, um, offering where you're not getting royalties, but you're getting exclusive access to certain things and owning tokens gives you that access. Maybe that's similar to the patronage, uh, patronage model. Although to me, patronage feels a bit like it's also mostly a donation of sorts where you don't mm -hmm. expect returns. You just want to fund their work. And I have to admit both from a personal perspective and also seeing how the world is evolving, it seems like people are more comfortable being patrons for, for artists and creators these days right. than they might have been 20 years ago. It seems much more common now to just give someone 20, 50, $100 a month or whatever it is, because you like what they do. Uh, I think that was, that was kind of unheard of 15, 20 years ago. I mean, right. people just didn't really do that, but now it's getting quite common and that's a really cool trend. Like I, I can see myself doing that more and more and I've done it a couple of times and I would like to do it more in crypto, just give people money that you want to see creating more stuff. Right. So. Um, yeah, I mean, I think there is definitely something, something there. The other day I was, uh, I was trying to figure out like how I could buy some LPs for some really obscure music genre, Japanese city <laughs> pop, which I'm uh, okay. a big fan of. And, and I thought like if, I, if there was a way I could just buy an piece or whatever, and, but probably I'd want to get the album or something as well. I'd probably pay a lot of money for that as like a collectible. Um, so yeah, interesting. It, is an, it is an interesting space, but there's still a lot of experimentation and like hurdles to overcome before it becomes really big. 
I think at some point, all the crypto music um, people that have given up on their music dreams need to come together and form a, <laughs> some type of bear market album of some sort or something. <laughs> a crypto yeah. album. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so, okay. the, go most, ahead, go most ahead. Of the, most of the crypto songs you've seen are not good, right? But yeah. Uh, yeah, hot, hot, take, hot take, hot yeah. take, hot <laughs> take. Okay, I wanna I wanna pivot back into to Nansen. Um, one of the things that's super like unique about uh, Nansen is its AI component. I'm curious to hear your point of view. Like, what what is the current state of AI in Web three? How are you seeing that today? So, first of all, I think if you mention AI and blockchain in the same sentence, there's a very high chance that you're uh, either a scammer or just right. Uh, Exactly. Nonsense, right? So just to, to be very clear about that upfront. Uh, so where where is there a productive intersection between the two technologies? I think, first of all, uh, the nice thing about blockchain and Web3 is that you have really clean data. You have extremely, because it's very tabular, it's ledger-based. That's different from what you might consider like typical Web2 data, which is often things like social media, text, and very unstructured. Uh, and one nice thing about that is that you can, you can apply a lot of machine learning methods to that data and, to, and do interesting things with it. But very little has been done in that area so far. So I can, I can talk about some examples of what we do in the intersection yeah. of AI and blockchain data. So one example, which is quite easy to understand for people is how do you price an NFT? And this is different from how do you price tokens because tokens are uh, fungible and they are kind of order book driven, liquidity pool driven, market driven. And uh, if you have one Bitcoin, you just look at, you know, what is it trading at? NFTs are different because by definition, if you're selling a non-fungible token, there is no other token currently on the market that's been sold or that being sold at, the, uh, at that um, that you can match it with. You can look at like similar NFTs, right? For example, NFTs in the same collection. You can also look backwards in time and see how much was this NFT priced uh, last time it was transacted, et cetera. And so one thing we do at Nansen is we have a machine learning model that basically learns uh, the patterns of how individual NFTs are trading. And then it calculates what's the premium of the different traits and attributes of that NFT within its collection. So think about it like this. You have, say, 10,000 board Ape NFTs, and they have a floor price. But the different individual pieces have a premium against the floor price because they might have rare traits and they might have certain aesthetic qualities. And so we use machine learning to basically train like across hundreds, I think at this point, maybe 1,000 plus different NFT collections. And, and give people estimates on like, how much is this NFT worth right now if you want to sell it? And so, you know, this obviously is, is kind of like, on the one hand, you can say humans might do a better job at this, but it's not scalable to have a human sit and in real time appraise each individual right. NFT across all the collections, right. right? So that's one example of using AI and machine learning for, for uh, Web3 purposes, leveraging the data that you get from the blockchain. Um, another, uh, another thing we do on the back end is to, uh, basically try to predict or classify different wallets into labels. So is this an exchange wallet? Is this an individual? Is it a bot? You know, 
that kind of stuff where you can use machine learning methods to try to infer that. Um, and then another example is uh, to try to predict which tokens are scams, right? So this is a very, you can almost think of it as like uh, analogous to email spam classification, right. which is one of the one of the first things that people did with uh, in web one or web two uh, when it comes to classifying emails, right? So how, how can you tell as early as possible that this token is, is a scam or is like somehow not a token that you'd want to see in your portfolio over you have your own wallet, right? That's another uh, problem that we, we use machine learning to solve. Um, and so, yeah, I, I guess you can tell that when, I, when we talk about AI, to me, I kind of equate it with machine learning, right? That's, that's like my background is in machine right. learning. And so at the end of the day, these are very, very similar things. I don't think of it as like a physical robot necessarily doing anything with, with blockchains. So, um, and then there are some more like cutting edge uh, research areas around um, blockchain and AI, for example, the area of like federated learning. Are there ways that you could, for example, distribute the distribute data across lots of different entities and then those entities can make predictions and they try to aggregate it again in a privacy preserving way but that's it's very fringe and it's not it's not a mainstream kind of area of ai and blockchain yet um so i think the the more tangible thing is using ai and machine learning on web3 data blockchain data to to solve like actual problems that's kind of the main focus that, that we have. And so like labeling wallets, pricing NFTs, classifying tokens, like those are some, some examples. I think it's super interesting the types of products that Nansen offers because you guys are very much building for the trader, the collector, right? Whether it yeah. be on an amateur level or whether it be on a professional level. Um, and I also see a world emerging where now that the creator economy is sort of get, like getting bigger and bigger and bigger, a lot more creators are either tokenizing their music, tokenizing their art, et cetera. There's also like a, a, an entrance from the other point of view. So what should we actually like, what, what should be like a price for buying a piece versus actually how should I sell a piece? Right. Mm. And like helping creators kind of understand what should I be listing my pieces at so that I can further like double down on my creativity and find that financial freedom that other creators are sort of exploring and discovering in web three. And yeah, I think, go, go, go ahead. If you want to say something on that. No, no, absolutely. I mean, it is trickier with say one of ones, uh, compared to say like profile picture collections, because you don't, by definition, you don't have data on them, right? You'd have to look right. at related one of ones or like pieces from the same creator or things like that. Uh, so, so it is a bit trickier from a data perspective and machine learning perspective to, to help artists. But I totally agree with you that, uh, the more information you have and the more data that you can base these decisions on, like the, the, mo the more likely it is that you're going to be able to sell it and also sell it at a, at a fair price. Right. So, yeah. yeah, yeah, super, super helpful. I think another thing that's interesting about, I guess you as an individual, Alex, and also the product that you're working on and that you're sort of leading is one, you're an NFT degenerate. You have the, the pudgy penguin as uh, as your PFP on Twitter. And I know you're actually quite quite into the whole DeFi side of things. And you were interviewed on CoinDesk quoted saying, DeFi brought the capital and NFTs bring the people. It's a phrase that you sort of repeat. It's a, I would say you're sort of like known for this phrase, okay? <laughs> and um, recently, 
for the longest time, actually, DeFi and NFTs used to be very like independent things. A lot of people that came in through NFTs didn't really experience the DeFi side of things, but now we're seeing the two sort of sectors converge, right? So in your mm. in your terms, like capital is now intersecting with people. Okay, how are you understanding this like recent shift? Uh, what are you looking at? Sort of where NFTs meet DeFi, whether it be on a project basis, trends that you're seeing, or just overall thoughts. Yeah, I think you can look at it from two perspectives. One is from the user perspective, uh, and the other one is from the product perspective. So from the user perspective, it is true that initially these two user bases were quite segregated. So you had people who were really into DeFi and they were like, NFTs is just a scam or, you know, this is completely silly and, and, and whatnot. And on the flip side, you had NFT people who had no interest in like yields or, you know, uh, liquidity pool provisioning, uh, liquidity provisioning and so on. Um, and then over time, especially I would say the DeFi folks started engaging with NFTs. I, I, I'm not sure it's as true the other way around. Like I think many NFT people are still like only interested in NFTs, but they yeah. are at least exposed to some of the crypto infrastructure um, just almost by force from interacting with NFTs. So, you know, you have to have some ether, right? And then like, how do you, how do you get that ether? You, well, you have to use, you know, maybe Uniswap occasionally. Right. And then and you're almost by force, you're pulled into some of these more basic crypto and or DeFi um, applications and, and protocols. Um, so that's from like a, the user perspective. Initially, I think, I think they were quite segregated. Now they're getting blended a bit more. And then from the product perspective, uh, there's also there's also a bit of a blend that's happening where uh, you know you can get yields on on NFTs, for example, or you can there are lending markets and lending pools um, for NFTs. You can now provide liquidity uh, for different NFTs, like NFTX. I think is an interesting right. uh, project that allowed you to fractionalize uh, or provide liquidity and fractionalize your, your NFTs and, and then buy effectively like tokens of that pool. Uh, it's actually been around for a long time, but sure. maybe it will have a bit of a revival now that people are seeing this intersection. Um, and then I do think that one place where they really come together is in gaming, but it's still early on that front. So uh, games like Axie Infinity um, naturally have to also have some DeFi infrastructure, right? You need to have um, like Katana, which is kind of the Uniswap fork on Ronin. You right. need to have that in order to provide people with trading uh, opportunities and swapping between tokens and things like that. Uh, and, and you get these very kind of like financialized gaming economies where you, you actually need some of the primitives from DeFi. Like uh, obviously you need DEXs, you probably need some kind of lending markets. And then naturally many of these gaming economies also have NFTs that represent items, they represent um, uh, avatars or different things in, the, in these games. So I, I feel like uh, game, the, the Web3 gaming sector is where definitely NFTs and DeFi come together, at least uh, as the games mature. So, so yeah, I, I think there are many different ways that uh, the intersection of, of NFTs and DeFi come together. And it is pretty interesting, though, that they were able to cater to such different user segments. 
initially. Uh, and it's a very healthy thing, right? I, I don't think I don't think people realize how big NFTs would become. They've mm -hmm. been around for a long time, and it's kind of curious that CryptoPunks and even OpenSea had been around for years before they really started taking right. off, right? It's, it's really strange. The, I think the pessimist take on it is that people got so rich in DeFi summer that they had nowhere to put their money, and then they just started <laughs> buying these JPEGs, and that caused the spike. I think there's a bit more to it. I mean, there's some truth to that, but I think there's a bit more to it than that. So, yeah. What's up, guys? Sorry for the quick pause, but I wanted to tell you about Bello a new blockchain analytics tool I built that helps Web3 native creators and communities learn more about their collectors and their on-chain behavior. Through a simple search, Bellows Intelligence can help you figure out a price for your NFT drop, show you what other communities your collectors are a part of, and empower you with insights to make confident decisions on how to grow your community. I built Bello with you in mind. So as a creator myself, Bellows helped me make money by finding sponsors for the podcast and allowed me to curate better content for you guys. And now it's ready to help other creators too. If you're a Web3 native creator, NFT project founder, or community manager, join the waitlist to try Bellows beta product today by signing up at bellow.lol forward slash join. That's B-E-L-L-O dot L-O-L forward slash join. All right, back to the episode. I, I think we've just sort of skimmed the surface of what DeFi is and what NFTs are. Um, I'm curious from someone who like looks at the data, who's building a data product, like what are sort of some interesting trends or like interesting insights you've sort of picked up on either like future forecasts of something that might pop off or uh, trends that have yet to come, but you're seeing them sort of like develop if, if anything in that nature sort of comes about. I guess I'm trying to like understand like what are you seeing as the future of these primitives and has Nansen sort of helped shape that for you? Yeah, so again, we talk about a lot about gaming here, right? But right. I think it's a good example. So okay. uh, if, if you go to um, Nansen's NFT uh, index uh, section, okay, um, we, we have, you know, actually I can just kind of spell out the URL. It's like pro.nansen.ai slash NFT dash trends. You, you okay. can see, and, and this is free for anyone to use. You don't have to have a Nansen account. Um, you, you can you can go to the NFT indexes tab, and we have kind of decomposed the NFT market into different indexes. And so, mm -hmm. I'll, I'll kind of just give a couple of examples. There's uh, there's a blue chip index which uh, tracks things like board apes, crypto punks, uh, and so on. And then there's a game uh, index, Game Fifty, which has fifty different gaming collections. Mm -hmm. And if you look at games, they have been slammed. Like year to date, they are down, let's see here, they're down 76% against mm. uh, against ETH. And ETH is also down. So they've gotten really slammed. And um, I, I think this goes back to what I was saying earlier that I'm kind of short-term bearish on, on NFT games or Web3 gaming, but I am long-term bullish. Um, and I think what's happening here is, is basically that it's so easy to announce an NFT game and to create the NFTs, but it's so hard to build the game. To build the game, yeah, hundred <laughs> percent. And and it takes a long time to build a game. And crypto investors are impatient, so they buy the NFTs. They're like, man, I want this game. And then it takes like one month, and they're like, 
why is the game here yet? <laughs> and, and then it's like, well, it takes, it takes a while to, to build a game, right? So, and also it's hard to build a game. So it's going to take a long time and most of them will suck, right? Even if it takes a long time. So uh, I think that one, I mean, let's see how this plays out. I think one interesting opportunity actually to dig into the whole gaming sector because there are so many projects now and mm. I think very few will succeed. And so uh, there's, there are some investors that are going to do, I think, really well in this area. Maybe it's almost analogous to like DeFi in 2019-20, where everything was like everyone's pessimistic. Uh, I, I think especially end of 18 and, and 2019 was maybe a kind of a pivotal year for people like Arthur from Defiance, right? Who did super well investing in SNX, he invested in Aave, I think he invested in Kyber. Um, because he understood that these are these are actually high quality projects in a sea of garbage projects, right? And he did the he did the due diligence, he did the research. I think there's going to be a similar wave here with games where someone's just going to spend a ton of time digging into the stuff, and they're going to discard you know 95% of the projects, but they're going to bet on the right projects, and those will become super successful. So I think. This is obviously, this is a lot of speculation and sort of my own thoughts, right? I can't prove that this is going to happen. Right. But I, I, do, I do think that there, there might be an analogy kind of going back to the DeFi space and those who are willing to do the research now might be a good time because there's a lot of pessimism as that index shows right. uh, around games, which means that you might be able to find some really good investments and you know, maybe a handful of them will succeed. Um, I don't think a lot will succeed, but I do think there's going to be some really big projects. So, okay. So we just sort of like touched upon the uh, pro.nansen.ai forward slash NFT dash trends. Okay. But another product that you guys recently released is Nansen portfolio, right? Which is through the acquisition of eight board. Um, can you, yeah. can you talk more about that? Why did you guys acquire eight board versus building out your own product? And what does the future of like Nansen portfolio sort of look like? Yeah, so at some point we realized that we don't want to only be kind of a vertical specialist at on-chain analytics. Uh, we saw that there's an opportunity to step up and become the information super app of Web3 to span more of uh, the information diet that a crypto native investor has. And when we had that realization, we the natural instinct is to figure out like what are the different things that you need uh, from an information perspective as an investor. And one of the say 10 to 12 modules that we listed was a portfolio tracker. Like you need to you need to have a good way to stay on top of your holdings. And it's getting increasingly difficult to do that with a multi-chain world, a multi-layered uh, world, and also, you know, uh, thousands or hundreds and thousands and then thousands of protocols that people use like DeFi protocols and so on and not to mention NFTs right which is its own uh, highly challenging area to do portfolio tracking right and and so uh, so we, we figured that this is an area where we want to play uh, we think this makes a lot of sense from a synergy perspective with our analytics product it adds a lot of stickiness so that users keep coming back every day to check their portfolio but it's also a nice way for them to kind of grow their portfolio by using the analytics product to make better decisions, right? So they're, they're very synergistic um, products like the, the Nansen analytics product and 
the now Thompson portfolio product. And then, so that was the first kind of we, we decision. Like we want to play in this area. We think it makes sense. And then you have to think about how do you, how do you win? How do you succeed? And how can you do this in, a, in a, an efficient and effective manner? And so you have a few different options here, right? Maybe to boil it down to two simple choices. Do you build or do you buy? Right. And, and we, we uh, kind of quickly concluded that if you build, then the other players that are already doing portfolio tracking are going to you know, pull ahead and continue to improve their products um, while we're almost like playing catch up. And it's also really, really hard to find really good engineers, uh, especially a year ago, it was extremely difficult. Like the market looked very different and people were starved for engineers and like recruiting was very, very difficult. Now it's a bit different. Um, and so we were fortunate enough to be introduced to Apeboard because we share a common uh, investor, SCB 10X. And so uh, Thai, who leads SCB 10X, the venture arm of the Siam Commercial Bank in, in Thailand, uh, they had incubated uh, Apeboard. So it's kind of weird that they're actually not just an investment from, from SCB 10X, they were actually incubated. So the team used to be SCB 10X employees, and then they created Apeboard in that environment, and they spun it out as its own project. And so... Um, we were, you know, I met with Ty uh, a few times uh, and we discussed this, like, you know, is there a possibility here to, to do something together? And so it made sense for us. And then you have to look at it from their perspective. Does it make sense for them? And I think the realization they had was that they are actually better positioned to succeed at their vision, which is to become the number one uh, portfolio tracker for Web3. Uh, as part of the Nelson family, because you can power this portfolio tracker with the best on-chain data in the world. Uh, that's, you know, in itself a huge advantage. You have better distribution and a more recognized brand, which is, uh, which is uh, advantageous. And then I think from a builder's perspective, if you think about Mike and Jackie, the two co-founders of Aboard, uh, they could now offload a lot of the stuff that they don't like doing, right? So think about everything that's like HR related or like accounting, finance, operations. There's a bunch of stuff that as a builder, engineer or product person, that's not so fun. And we already have all that stuff set up, right? So right. I think it was quite compelling for them to, to join us because they realized, hey, our chance of success at becoming the number one here is much higher if we do it together with them. And also, you know, it'll be nice to be able to just focus on the product uh, instead of having to deal, deal with this other stuff that takes a lot of time. So, um, so I really, I really strongly believe that if you want an acquisition to be successful, it has to be win-win. Like it, it just can't be uh, kind of predatory. Like we're going to just buy you out in some kind of hostile way, or <laughs> that just doesn't work, right? Like long-term. And so. The, we also structured the deal in a way that was very incentive uh, aligned. And so at this point, they're kind of members of the Nelson family. And nice. uh, they they operate as their own product squad within Nelson. And so so anyway, that's that's a lot of talk about like the team and organizational stuff. But at the end of the day, from a product perspective, I do think that um, although there are portfolio trackers out there, um, they 
we we haven't like reached the end state of that. There's still a lot of work to do, and I think this is an area where Nonsense can play and and not just play, but also win. So um, the synergies that you get between portfolio and many of our other products, like Connect, which is our messaging uh, product as well, is very interesting. And analytics and and all these different things. So um, I think for users, it's a it's a great thing because it's also free to use. So let me. Let me plug the URL here as well. Yeah, go for it. AI. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, so you can go to that, start tracking your Web3 assets across more than 40 different blockchains and almost 500 different DeFi protocols. And it's totally free to use. The, the, from a business perspective, why is it free to use? Well, um, we think that if you use that product, there's, there's a chance that you would want to upgrade to the analytics product at some point. So. You know, if that's 1%, 2%, 5% of the users, it's still great for us. And, right. you know, we can offer this product for free because we have a larger kind of a business model that makes sense beyond this portfolio alone because we have this information super active. So uh, on that, okay, you just introduced the next sort of product that I want to talk about, this new Web3 native Discord that Manson is building. I think uh, the term Web3 native Discord has been one of the hottest keywords uh, in venture funding of all these new entrepreneurs trying to build their version of Web3 Native Discord. What is Nansen's Web3 Native Discord? Is it focused on a specific audience, like the trading crowd? Because uh, I remember also Parallel announced something, but it focused more on the gaming crowd, right? Like a chat room for mm. the gaming crowd. Is Connect for the trading crowd? Does it expand beyond that? Well, what's the vision around this new chat application that you guys built or you guys are building? Yeah, so first of all, it's called uh, Nansen Connect. Okay. And you can try it out if you go to connect.nonson.ai. It's already in limited beta. Um, and so when you start using it, you basically sign in with your MetaMask uh, wallet. So your wallet is effectively your identity. So that's, that's the first uh, point of departure from the Discord uh, version where you kind of create a Discord account. Here, your wallet is your identity. And um, this is something that we've been wanting to do for years, actually, almost since the beginning of Nonson. And uh, there's different ways you can think about the impetus for this, like why we created it. I think one user story that kept coming back to us was we had smaller crypto funds and people who were doing quite active OTC deals, like on smaller tokens and things like that. And they were telling us that very often they would look into a specific token, right? Let's think of something that's very long tail. I don't know if it's like Xmon or... Uh, Muse or any mm -hmm. tail token. You look at that and you say, hey, there's this wallet that's selling tokens on Uniswap and they still have a bunch left, but I want to buy these. Like, why don't I just buy them out, right, OTC? But there's no way to find out, like, who is that wallet? How do you, mm. how do you reach them? And so the initial thought was, why don't we build a way that allows our users to contact another wallet and then do an OTC trade directly in that chat. So that was a user story that came back to us frequently. And we thought that's pretty interesting. Like if we could do that, it would create a very strong network effect. And then the other thing, so that was the first thing, like just being able to DM, uh, you know, and do peer-to-peer -peer communication with another wallet. Uh, and then um, we started working on this and a few months in uh, BlockScan or Etherscan launched their own BlockScan chat, which is, it kind of does this, like it's a peer-to-peer -peer messaging. Right. Code, but, but 
it was very clear that it doesn't have network effects. So most of the messages are, are sent and then no one sees them and then they don't respond and then you have an uns unsuccessful or unsatisfactory interaction with it. So the second thing it was like, how do you, how can you create network effects? Uh, and what we realized was that the whole Web3 community area and like NFT collections are already communities uh, that you might be able to piggyback off. And so think about how Facebook launched. When Facebook, it, you can't just put Facebook on the web and expect people to start creating profiles. You need to be smart about how you build networks. And what they did was they went to college campuses around the US and they launched in existing networks, like let's say Harvard. And you try to get as many students onto the platform such that there is a network effect and people have uh, connections from, from day one with other people that they already know. And then if you do that a couple of times, then maybe those cliques and sub-networks will start connecting with each other and then you grow, right? What we're doing is very analogous to that, except instead of college campuses, we're going to NFT collections. And we're saying, if you can get a Pudgy Penguins channel, that's different from peer to peer, right? It's not just one person messaging another. If you have one channel where people can communicate, there's gonna be more stuff happening in that channel, which stimulates activity and you get the snowball effect over time. And then you can, in addition, give them the peer to peer uh, communication, but right. the channels were kind of a key insight that we want to replicate. And, and then you realize, well, this is very similar to Discord, right? And so that, then you're back to kind of comparing it to Discord. Uh, and so at the end of the day, the reason we're doing it is to basically cater to some of those user needs that have been surfaced. And I think, frankly, a lot of people have been quite disillusioned by Discord, their inability to handle spam. Absolutely, absolutely. It, it, it's, 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 not, it's not really Web3 native, so it's, it's kind of clunky to do token gating and things like that. So we, because you have your wallet as your identity with Nelson Connect, you can naturally gate uh, access through tokens. So we now have NFT channels that you can only join if you have the NFT. So there's a mm. natural gating. We are also now rolling out token gating. So if you have one Wi-Fi token, you can join the Wi-Fi channel. Mm. If you have one Lido token, you can join the Lido channel. If you have a Pleaser DAO token, you can join the Pleaser DAO channel. And so that also opens up a lot of interesting new communities. But I think so, so I think like there are two abstract uh, concepts here. The first one is that your wallet is your identity. That is a very, I think something that more and more people are leaning into, but it's very right. different from the web two mentality. And the second concept is that these online communities are very strong networks and we want to support them and help nurture them. Uh, and if you can create web three native ways that people can communicate with each other, even anonymously or pseudonymously through their wallet, that's, that's a super interesting area for us to explore. And, and once again, just to be upfront about like the business aspect, it's similar to portfolio. If we give this product away for free, we get stickiness and network effects. But if one to 5% of those end up becoming paying users of Nelson Analytics, then it pays for itself, right? right. So, so it's, it's one of those things where you're kind of trying to create something that's useful for, for the whole community and it's free, but at the end of the day, hopefully it also drives uh, value for us as a company.
the last few minutes that we have here, I want to specifically pivot the conversation to building communities in Web3, okay? Um, specifically, from the creator point of view, a lot of listeners on Mint, they're in either independent creators, they're creator-based communities, they're platforms building for creators, collectors themselves. And I think in the creator crowd, on-chain data is, is I don't want to say a relatively newer topic, but there's the element of sort of like seeing the financialization of on-chain data, seeing primary sales, secondary sales trends accordingly, how it compares to the industry at large. But there's also the ability to understand like we are in a bear market. A lot of these communities will likely die off, but how can some of them or the ones, the smartest ones use on-chain data as a way to further strategically grow and monetize their, their on-chain audience, on-chain collectors, community, whatever, whatever keyword they want to use. You're a creator, Alex, you're a musician, right? You have the, the creative sensitivity to you. I'm curious from your point of view with such an analytical background, but also a creative background, what are some either metrics, strategies, ways you think creator communities can sort of use on-chain data as a way to further build and further monetize their audience in Web3? What does that look like to you? Yeah, it's a tough question. I think the first thing that comes to mind is on-chain data is probably good to think of, you can think of kind of health metrics. So almost like early warnings, right? Um, what people do on-chain is in many ways, the first source of information on, on activity and behavior. So if you just imagine that you, um, you have an NFT collection or you have some token or something like that, being able to know, are people still holding on to these tokens? Like, are they selling them and so on? That's something that's, um, I think, very important to, to stay on top of. So if you use something like token god mode or NFT god mode announcement, you can see not just if people are selling them, but you can see who is selling them and you can see who is buying them. And um, I think this from, from a, almost like health metrics slash early warning uh, perspective, especially in a bear market, I think that's maybe one very actionable way to use this, right? That you are staying on top of this. You could even set up smart alerts, which is another feature we have, and get notifications in real time if someone is selling or transferring NFTs or tokens, right? So that you can know, hey, you know, I mean, maybe it can be a bit creepy if you approach it this way, but just kind of <laughs> hey, I noticed you sell your hey, you sold yeah. your assets. <laughs> exactly. exactly. So it can be a bit creepy, but people should be aware that that's how the blockchain works, right? But you can. But also, if you lose, but also if if you lose a customer in Web two, like you'll hit them up. You'll be like, "Yo, should, why did should, why did yeah. you leave the yeah?" And okay. and it's not to it's not to like shame them. It's to learn from it. Like, what you know, what made you what made you leave this community, or like, you know, what would you like to see us change, right? So I think staying on top of that is quite not too dissimilar from something like Google Analytics on a website or or, or other things like that. Uh, so kind of health metrics and so on. You know, and that's looking at it from a kind of pessimistic bear market lens. But the other way to think about it is, you know, if you're growing, like who are those people coming into your community? How do you ensure that they are onboarded to your community in a good way? If you see, uh, I don't know, an influencer or some .eth account mm -hmm. or something that's buying your token, maybe you want to DM them and say like, hey, you know, really cool that you joined, that you bought this token, like, you know, how, how, how can I help you kind of get more engaged with our community or whatever? So there's different ways you can be smart about that. And I think there are non-creepy, non-invasive ways to do this and be just transparent and open about it uh, with people. And if 
people don't understand that's how the blockchain works, maybe it's a chance to educate them a bit. Um, that's, that's probably the most actionable way I would think about it. Uh, I would also say, though, that, you know, you can't, you can't create communities based on analytics alone, right? Analytics right. is more like a supporting function. Uh, and learning from other successful communities is a good idea, depending on what kind of project you have. I, I do think Axie Infinity is an incredible example of a community that was built during the last bear market. Um, and of course, people have different opinions about the project. Uh, I'm a seed investor, so I'm always going to be <laughs> bullish. Uh, right. <laughs> uh, and, and I think the team is great. The community is great, genuinely, which is why I invested, right? Um, I think Synthetics is another example of a very strong community that had uh, very interesting takes and approaches to governance that were, at the time, maybe seen as kind of controversial. A lot of their governance process was kind of off-chain in Discord and voting right. emojis and stuff like that, which uh, at the time was kind of ridiculed almost, uh, but, but it made the whole governance process much smoother and more engaging to people. So they, there's a ton that people can learn from synthetics and just looking at how they did things. Um, and then there's a bunch of other communities you can learn from. And also you should learn from failed communities, like what did they do wrong, right? right? So anyways, I think um, analytics can support you, but I, I do think there's a lot more to it, obviously, and you have to figure out you know, uh, where you want to play and, and how you will win, where you will play. And you can learn from both successful and unsuccessful communities around you uh, on how to do that. Awesome. I think the last two questions, really fast ones that I, that I have for you is, uh, if you were to sort of like build Nansen from the beginning, what's one thing you wish you knew when you started that you know now? Hmm. Yeah, so that's an interesting one. Um, I, I I could say that uh, when we started building on I had no idea that we would support NFTs at all. Um, in the end, I think it turned out pretty well. So I'm not sure we would need to do anything differently. Um, hmm. Maybe maybe one thing I would. Uh, consider doing differently is to kind of lean in more on um, sort of a native Web3 identity. So mm. it's not necessarily a mistake. Like we we kind of were we had email based accounts from the beginning, which has been which has worked okay for us. Now we've added Web3 accounts so that you can literally log in with your MetaMask and uh, and use that as an account. There's there's something interesting there. Um, I don't know if uh, this is about doing things differently, but one challenge we have, which uh, I think someone should try to solve, and there are projects out there trying to solve it, is just how do you do subscription payments in Web3 mm. and crypto? Mm -hmm. That's like a difficult problem. Um, yeah. I mean, there's okay. obviously like a lot of learnings and things, mistakes we've made and, and so on. But yeah, those are probably some of the things that come to mind, maybe leaning more into like a Web3 native type identity, from the beginning and then uh, somehow solving the magical problem of subscription payment. Okay, and the last question I have for you is, do you use Apple Music or Spotify? Spotify. Oh, what's the, the most recent saved song on your, on your Spotify favorites? 
Oh yeah, let me check. I make a uh, I make a new playlist every month because it's kind of a good way to take me back to that month. And if I play that playlist, it's like, oh yeah, yeah, this is what February. Is like. <laughs> uh, the, so in August, the first song on my list is uh, "Let's Celebrate" by the Jones Girls. <laughs> <laughs> i love it alex this was great man thank you so much for being on uh before i let you go where can we find you where can we learn more about nansen you can go to nansen.ai to check out the product uh you can also follow nansen on twitter nansen underscore ai or you can follow me on twitter at a svanovic nice thank you so much we'll have to do this again soon uh until next time What's up, guys? Thank you for listening. If you've gotten this far, then you are a champ, and I owe you a free listener pin. Go to adamlevy.io forward slash NFT, fill in your info, and I'll distribute the NFT towards the end of the season. By collecting your pin, you prove your contribution to the season and get exclusive access to content, allow lists, and more. So be sure to collect yours. Also, please make sure to rate and subscribe to the podcast wherever you're listening. This helps me out so much. And finally, hit me up on Twitter at LevyChain. I want to hear what you're building, the latest crowdfund you're trying to complete, or if you simply want to chat. I love talking about where crypto meets the creator economy, and it's no different if it's coming from you directly. So thanks again for your support. It means the world, and I'll see you on the next episode.